She was barely an adult. She had a unique hairstyle, was a heavy drinker, diagnosed with a mental illness, and for a few years in the early 40s, she was a huge star in Hollywood. But even with starring in a few huge films, within 10 years, she disappeared from the movie scene altogether. Years later, she would be discovered working as a waitress in a hotel in New York City. Today, I tell the story of actress Veronica Lake on the 159th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Well, how have you been? I've just recently returned from my adventures out in America's West. Did you miss me? Before we get started, I wanted to thank Nancy and Gordon Fry for doing an episode of my show two weeks ago. I hope you listened to it. I fully enjoyed hearing Storytime with Chooch. If you haven't heard the episode yet, I won't spoil who Chooch is, but the Fries tell tales of history from his memory. I'm really hoping and planning on the Fries doing another Coffee with Jeff episode in the future. By the way, if you don't know who the Fries are, they do or used to do shows like The History Files, Gordon's Gun Closet, and What's in a Name? And Nancy regularly appears on Moving On, Psycon's own movie podcast. I'm really hoping that the Fries get back into podcasting because I really miss the history files. Anyway, thanks, Nancy and Gordon. I thoroughly enjoyed your episode of Coffee with Jeff. Speaking of the Fries, you know, I've never met them in person, but I came very close during my vacation. You see, I live in the Chicago area, and the Fries live in the state of Washington, some 2,100 miles away. As part of our vacation, my wife and I were at Crater Lake in Washington with the idea to go to Mount St. Helens, which would have taken us right by the Fries' home. But the thing is, the whole American Northwest has been plagued with forest fires this summer, as well as some places in Canada. Everywhere you go out there, it's awful. There's a layer of thick smoke hanging in the air. Crater Lake itself was not even visible from the edge of the caldera. We couldn't take it, so we changed our plans from Mount St. Helens to Yellowstone, which is hundreds of miles east from Crater Lake, and and while there was some smoke there, it wasn't like it was in Washington. But Gordon and Nancy, we are planning to go out there again one of these summers, when there's not so much burning. And I should say my heart goes out to them and all the people out west who have to deal with that every day of their lives. I couldn't imagine. Anyway, you might have noticed, if you've listened to Coffee with Jeff over the years, that I have this thing for old Hollywood and old Hollywood stories. And every once in a while, I feel the need to tell one. The other day I was watching I Married a Witch, starring Frederick March and Veronica Lake. And although I knew a little bit about Lake's life, I decided I wanted to know more, so now we have a show 
The weather here in Illinois' northeast is starting to cool off a bit. We've got leaves falling from the trees, and I have a bit of yard work to do, so let's get into this. I've got a hot cup of coffee, and I'm ready to tell the story of a blonde-haired star from the golden age of Hollywood. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. And right now I know that uh, all of you are very anxious to uh, meet that very attractive gal that I just spoke about. Of course, it's uh, the television version with both eyes showing Miss Veronica Lane. Hi, Ronnie. Hello, Eloise. And believe me, it's fun to be able to see out of both eyes. <laughs> well, I, as a matter of fact, I was just admiring your... Uh, well, it's sort of a poodle cut, isn't it? You have no idea what a relief it is to finally get rid of the hair and really see out of both eyes for a change. You mean you didn't like that sort of peekable bob of yours? No, there was some peculiar thing happened to people when I had the long blonde hair that was just sort of straight. They expected this to be a cold, uh, deadpan type of person, and if I dared crack a smile, they thought something was wrong. But, Veronica, that was sort of your, your trademark. I mean, what did people have to say about it? Weren't they sort of worried when you destroyed it? Well, uh, some people were upset. In fact, so many of them, to the point of where I became a little bit annoyed. They would come up to me and say, well, my dear, what did you do with your hair? And I finally got to the point of where I just said, well, obviously it's been cut. In 1970, a low-budget horror film was released called Flesh Feast. It's about a mad scientist named Dr. Ellen Frederick, who is making a clone of Adolf Hitler. Yes, it's one of those. It's a bad film. Really bad. But here's the thing. The mad scientist, Dr. Ellen Frederick, is played by the one and only Veronica Lake. It was her last film appearance. And not only did she star in the film, but she was also an executive producer. Veronica Lake, known for her peekaboo hairstyle, was an American film stage and television actress who won both popular and critical acclaim for her roles in such films as Sullivan's Travels and I Married a Witch, and for her femme fatale roles in film noirs during the 1940s such as This Gun for Hire with Alan Ladd. She began life in Brooklyn on November 14, 1922 as Constance Frances Marie Ackelman. Being a small girl, she was often picked on by the boys in her neighborhood and quickly learned to defend herself, becoming the toughest girl around. She would later say, I was the toughest broad on the block. I could whip them all. I preferred the companionship of little boys because girls would backstab and gossip all the time. Boys didn't. She hated wearing frilly girls' clothes, the type her mother wanted her to dress in. She preferred jeans and a shirt. She also loved going barefoot. Even at a young age, she was a beauty, developing the looks that would work for her later as an actress. She had bright blue eyes, short blonde hair, and soft, creamy skin. The first acting performance for Veronica Lake, who was known as Connie at the time, came in a St. Angelo's School play, Poor Little Rich Girl, in which she got to sing two songs and wear a bunny suit. She received rave reviews from the audience and her parents. Afterwards, however, she showed no more interest in acting than any other activity in her life. Connie wasn't one of those you hear about that was determined at an early age to be a famous actress. For her, it was just, well, something to do or try. 
Life in New York was fairly ordinary for the young girl, but that changed in February 1932. Her father worked for the Sun Oil Company, and he was killed in an industrial explosion, one of the worst ship explosions in Philadelphia's history. She was only 10 years old. A year later, perhaps with the idea that a young girl needed a father, her mother remarried to a newspaper staff artist named Anthony Keene. For a while, Connie and her stepfather got along well, and the young girl took his surname. She was now Constance Keene. I said her and her father got along, but that was only at the start. As the years went by, she began to resent him, mainly for not being around. Her mother would later say, I think she started hating Anthony because she had built up this hatred towards her real father, and that carried over when I married Anthony. If her stepfather made her unhappy, it would get worse when she was sent to Villa Marie, an all-girls Catholic boarding school in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. She hated everything about it, like being separated from her mother and having to wear dull black uniforms. Soon she began to rebel, which would lead to her being expelled. About this time, her stepfather contracted tuberculosis, so they moved to Miami, Florida so he could get treatment. It was at Miami High School that the 15-year-old began developing into a real beauty. Yet she was a loner who had trouble making friends, so much so that her mother, being very worried, sent her to a psychiatrist. Her illness was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. Her mother desperately attempted to get her into therapy, but Connie wasn't having it. She would never show up for her appointments. Mom felt helpless as not being able to help her daughter, who was also having problems at school, the principal often calling home to talk to her parents about her destructive behavior. It seemed only a matter of time before she would be forced to leave. And because of her blossoming beauty, which made her look more like 21 than her real age of 15, the boys in the school couldn't keep their hands off her. Perhaps it was an attempt to make new friends that caused the young woman to join a sorority. The one she picked, however, had a condition that each candidate must enter a beauty competition, so the very nervous young lady entered the Miss Miami Beauty Contest. Part of the contest required each girl to be photographed at poolside or the beach. This made Connie very uncomfortable, and many times she attempted to back out. She would stand in front of the mirror, practicing, trying to look sexy. She thought a shake of her butt in a tight bathing suit might impress the judges. Well, it just might have, because she finished in third place. She jumped up and down in excitement in hearing her name called. Afterwards, her mother met the master of ceremonies, Harry Richman, who said, She is the clear making of a star. She'd make it in Hollywood for sure. Up to this point, her mother didn't know exactly how to help her daughter, but the idea of a Hollywood career seemed to be the answer. Mom entered her in the Miss Florida Beauty Contest, and to the surprise of both Connie and her mother, she took first place. Unfortunately, her crown was soon taken away when it was discovered she was only 15, with the minimum age requirements being 18. 
but the disappointment didn't last long, as she was hired by the Flamingo Hotel in Miami Beach to work with the Ritz Brothers, a very successful comedy team at the time. It was while there she came to the attention of Bill Grady from MGM, who soon arranged a screen test, and at 15, Connie, her mother, and her stepdad were off to Hollywood. Things didn't go well in Hollywood. Her screen test was canceled, and Connie didn't know where to go. Her mother enrolled her in the Bliss Hayden School of Acting. Connie thought the school was a waste of time and made no effort, but with the encouragement of a friend she had met at the school, Gwen Horn, she began going to auditions for bit parts in films and was cast in many small roles. She appeared in very minor roles in quite a few films going under the name of Connie Keene, such as All Women Have a Secret, Dancing Coeds, The Attorney's New Bride, and Sorority House. In the film All Women Have a Secret, Connie's one scene was with Jeannie Cagney, sister of the legendary actor James Cagney. Jeannie later said of her, Connie was a darling little girl with golden blonde hair. She didn't have it in the peekaboo cut yet. I was only in one scene with her, and afterwards, we all became like a family. It was hard to part when it was all over. Her acting career was starting to take off, but so was her fondness for alcohol. At the age of 17, she began to come home later and later, and her parents began to worry. Of course, she would tell them that she was just out with friends, but the truth was she was out drinking at a local bar. And alcohol was a far worse problem for her due to her schizophrenic illness. It was only a matter of time for her parents to figure out what was going on. Her mother, in a panic, contacted an attorney. He told her that he could pick up the underage girl and have a hearing to see if she should be put in an institution. I should have done something, her mother later said, but her career stood in the way of right or wrong. I didn't want to be accused of ruining her career or becoming known as one of those hateful mothers. It was during the film Forty Little Mothers that Connie decided to change her hairstyle and let it hang down, the style which often covered her right eye. During one scene in the film, her hair did just that, fell over her eye. Eddie Cantor, star of the film, became enraged. According to the book Peekaboo, the story of Veronica Lake by Jeff Henberg, Connor yelled, What the hell was that? Did you see that? Her hair just ruined the scene. Bugsby Berkeley, the director of the film, disagreed, responding, Eddie, a little hair isn't going to hurt one scene. I like it. It brings a certain charm to our little girl. Cantor, who was known for his temper tantrums, yelled, She and her hair have destroyed the scene. They go or I do. But Berkeley wasn't going to give in. I'm keeping her and her hair in whether you like it or not. That's final, Berkeley said. While it might have helped her stand out from the other 39 girls in the scene, it didn't do anything to spark her career. Then a few events happened in her life. She did a disastrous screen test, which was due to her being so nervous she couldn't handle it, so much so that she cried after. Then she met the man who would become her first husband, John S. Deatley, and the two began dating. Her stepfather would have a serious heart attack, and then she got a call from Veronica Grueling from Paramount. 
Grueling asked how tall she was. After she responded, five feet one inch, Grueling said thank you and hung up. After spending the night in the hospital with her stepfather, she got another call from Grueling. She said she wanted Connie to take another screen test. She did, and it was a major turning point in her career. But as far as Connie was concerned, the screen test was horrible. The director of the screen test was a man named Ted Weeks. From what I've read, Ted Weeks was a person who was called a bust man. He loved boobs. He had the legs of his chair cut short and would talk in a low voice, causing the female actors to walk over. They had to bend over to talk to him, and if they were dressed just right, as Connie was that day, he would get a good look. According to Richard Webb, who was there on that day, during one of these talks, Connie's breasts, much to her embarrassment, popped out of her dress at the same time her hair fell in front of her eye. Now, for most of the test, the cameras just focused on her body, which really upset her. And the whole time she felt distracted because her hair kept falling into her face. Later, when she got home, she thought of cutting it all off with a pair of garden shears. During the test, as legend goes, one of the electricians high up in the rafters almost fell while leaning over to get a good look down her dress. When she was leaving, a cameraman said to her, Good test. The first thing we see is this big nipple, followed by five minutes of body. She played it off with a laugh, but actually was humiliated. She went home and cried her eyes out. Meanwhile, the director, Ted Weeks, while mentally drooling, went around talking about this girl whom he said had breasts out to here as he cupped his hands in front of his chest. Though the test didn't go right as far as she was concerned, she got an offer to star in the film I Wanted Wings, but on one simple condition. She would leave her hair alone. The soon-to-be Veronica Lake would say of this, I was playing a sympathetic drunk. I had my arm on a table. It slipped. My hair, it was always baby fine and had a natural break, fell over my face. It became my trademark purely by accident. Arthur Hornblow, the film's producer, had one problem with her, and that was her name. And after a sleepless night, he called her and said, Your eyes have the coolness of a lake, and you look more like a Veronica, which is my secretary's name. So let's call you Veronica Lake. If it's any consolation to Lake, and the way she was humiliated during her screen test, Ted Weeks, the boob man, would be fired from production early on and replaced. Considering he'd been trying to sleep with Veronica ever since the screen test, so much so that at one point she threatened to quit and another point she complained to Paramount, Lake couldn't have been happier. I Wanted Wings became a huge hit, and Veronica Lake and her trademark hairstyle became a big star being dubbed The Find of 1941, even before the film was released. The thing about her hairstyle, even though it's the way we think of her today, it didn't last long. It seemed that many women all over the country were trying to copy her look. But when World War II broke out, and many factories began hiring women while the men were overseas fighting, the long hair became a danger around machinery. So at one point, 
Lake changed her hairstyle at the urging of the United States government to encourage women to adopt a more practical, safer hairstyle. Lake was also a popular pinup girl for the soldiers and traveled throughout the United States to raise money for war bonds. During her time in Hollywood, she became known for her film noir roles with Alan Ladd like This Gun for Hire and Blue Dahlia. Her most popular film, of course, was Preston Sturgis's classic Sullivan's Travels, and she really got to show off her comic skills in I Married a Witch. But by 1949, only seven years after I Wanted Wings, her career began to fall apart. Ever since her first film, she was known as being difficult to work with. Joel McRae, who starred with her in Sullivan's Travels, was asked to re-team with her for I Married a Witch, but he said, Life's too short for two films with Veronica Lake. Eddie Bracken, her co-star in Star Spangled Rhythm, was quoted as saying, She was known as the bitch and she deserved the title. Raymond Chandler, who wrote the screenplay for Blue Dahlia, referred to her as Veronica Lake. Now, was it one of those situations, well, you've heard it before, when a man is difficult, he's considered intense or passionate. But when a woman does it, she's considered a bitch. But we must remember that she was very insecure and drinking very heavily. So maybe that had something to do with it as well. But whatever the reason, Paramount, the studio she was under contract with, began giving her less and less quality roles. She moved from Paramount to 20th Century Fox, where she appeared in a handful of supporting roles. Her last film was in 1949, called Slattery's Hurricane, directed by her second husband, André de Tooth. Speaking of marriage, she was married three times between 1940 and 1959 and had four children. Her marriage to de Tooth ended after they filed for bankruptcy for not paying taxes and lost everything, including their home. After Slattery's Hurricane, she appeared for a while on television in such shows as Lux Video Theater, Tales of Tomorrow, and Betty Crocker's Star Matinee. But soon, she disappeared altogether. In a later interview, she told Hollywood reporter Sue Cameron, I hated Hollywood. I wasn't a person. I was a commodity. I was being suffocated here and had to get out. And also... They said, she'll be back in a couple of months. Well, I never returned. Enough was enough already. Did I want to be one of the walking dead or a real person? She attempted a stage career in England and, and was married for a third time in 1955 to songwriter Joseph A. McCarthy. After the two got divorced and she was no longer getting stage work, her drinking worsened and she eventually disappeared from the public eye altogether. Then, in 1962, a New York Post reporter found her using the name Connie DeTooth and living in an all-woman's Martha Washington Hotel in Manhattan. She was working as a waitress downstairs in the cocktail lounge. Lake said she took this job in part because I like people. I like talking to them. When the story came out, many of her fans figured she was destitute and began sending her money. She returned every penny as a matter of pride and said in an interview, It was though people were making me out to be down and out. I wasn't. I was paying $190 a month for rent then. That's a long way from being broke. 
While watching her in later interviews, she really seemed fine with not being in the public eye. Being that she got so famous so young, she seemed to enjoy living an ordinary life, the one she had never had. On an appearance she did on the Dick Cavett Show in 1971, she seemed intelligent, funny, happy, and still quite beautiful. Anyway, after the story, she began getting offers once again. She appeared in a 1963 off-Broadway revival of the musical Best Foot Forward. She began appearing on TV and did a few interviews, something she was reluctant to do because she figured no one would remember her. She published her memoirs in the book Veronica, the Autobiography of Veronica Lake, in which she talked about her career, her failed marriages, her romances with Howard Hughes, Tommy Manville, and Aristotle Onassis, her alcoholism, and her guilt over not spending enough time with her children. Looking back at her career, she said, I never did those cheesecakes like Ann Sheridan or Betty Grable. I just used my hair. And she laughed off the term sex symbol, instead referring to herself as a sex zombie. Now, for some reason I can't figure out, she used the money she got from her autobiography to co-produce and star in her final film, Flesh Feast. I believe it's on YouTube if you have the hankering to watch it. In June 1973, she saw a doctor complaining of stomach pains. She had cirrhosis of the liver due to her years of drinking. She died on July 7, 1973. She was only 50 years old. The most hideous scheme in the history of mankind brings to the screen a diabolic international intrigue where violent men quickly eliminate those who stand in their way. Flesh feast, where the dead serve the living, where innocent people die at the hands of evil men who'll do anything for power and money. Veronica Lake is back, with hatred in her smile and vengeance in her heart. Acting like a raving maniac, frightening the girls. Now you want to disturb my laboratory? Well, my answer is no, and that is final. I never said the process was pretty. It's a special breed of Califora. They feed on human flesh. There. See the little hooks around his mouth? They clamp under the flesh while they are feeding. What's the matter? Don't you like my little maggots? For those who love horror. For those who have the guts. Flesh Feast will make your flesh creep. Don't miss it. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, and I'll make this quick because I know the story was sort of long. You know, when she left Hollywood, it wasn't because she wasn't getting any roles. She wasn't blacklisted or anything like that. She just wasn't getting good roles and was sick and tired of the business. How much of this had to do with her sickness or alcohol, I don't know. And there are also many stories about her ashes, like they weren't claimed for two years, they were sold at an auction and things like that. And it seems there are many different stories about it, and I didn't really go into that. Like I always say in, in tales like this, it's not the whole story. Even if I had six hours, I probably couldn't have told the whole story. I told what I could tell in 20 minutes. I suggest two books if you're interested in Veronica Lake. First, there's her autobiography. And then there's Peekaboo, the story of Veronica Lake by Jeff Henberg. That book I used a lot for reference in today's story. 
Now, how about the ending credits? This episode was made possible through listeners like you. You know, the ones that support the Psycon Network? You can be one of these good people by visiting Psycon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. And look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Let me tell you, when me and my lady were driving hundreds of miles through the United States West, we listened to episode after episode of Who's Who, Psycon's Doctor Who podcast hosted by Brecky and Petter. Just so you know, the two are back doing Doctor Who episodes, beginning with the first of the new Who. Can't wait to start listening to that myself. You can listen to this and other shows at Psycon.fm. You know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. Well, I have to admit I haven't been posting much lately. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, why don't you go over to iTunes and leave me a review or give me a few stars or something. Those really help the show. And remember, all the links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. Nancy and Gordon Fry for covering for me last episode. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something, I don't know, extraordinary? Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with